The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, uh, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I am delighted to talk again to Mobin Vade. You are most welcome, sir. Uh, thank you for having me. Mobin Vade is a Muslim public intellectual and writer who focuses on how traditional Islamic frames of thinking intersect the modern world. He has authored a number of pieces on Islamic sexual and gender norms, including the oft-referenced article, can Islam accommodate homosexual acts, Quranic revisionism, and the case of Scott Kugel, which you can read on the Muslim Matters website and other places as well. Now, he recently published a courageous article uh, back in January entitled Where the Rainbow Ends, American Muslims and LGBT Activism, which he has kindly agreed to discuss today. The introduction, uh, in the introduction, he quotes two telling passages from the Quran, which I'd like just to read. And Allah is not shy of the truth. If only there had been among the generations before your time, people with a remnant of good sense to forbid corruption on the earth. We saved only a few of them while the unjust pursued the enjoyment of plenty and persisted in sin. So these are two uh, uh, Quranic verses set up uh, and introduce the uh, article. So what drew you to write this article on American Muslims and LGBT activism? Well, a couple of things. I think the uh, one of them certainly had to do with the condition of our community here in America. Um, every single American Muslim civil rights institution has either decided to punt on the question of LGBT activism and LGBT overall as a subject, which is to say that if a Muslim finds themselves in a compromised political or legal position over their stance on LGBT and what Islam has to say on it, none of these organizations are in fact going to defend them. And there have been a number of cases like that here locally. Um, in fact, throughout the United States, where if Muslim organization, Islamic school, mosque finds itself in a difficult situation or a position, they end up having to go to Christian institutions, frankly, um, wow. to find support and aid. So just about every single one of our uh, civil rights institutions has either been silent on it or, for the vast majority, been actively supportive of LGBT activism and LGBT rights, which is what I chronicle in the paper. And the assertiveness of their activism is such that they're not simply speaking as secular political actors. They are affirmatively moral in their discourse. They speak as moral actors. They talk about positive developments. They celebrate things. Um, that the, Those are not the words of people who are indifferent to homosexuality and transgenderism, but people who, in fact, uh, appear to support it. And for Muslims to have their public face, institutions that purport to represent them and to speak on behalf of the faith and their community, to be um, representing and expressing views that are so inimical to the values of Islam is something that I felt required redress and, uh, and, and a taking of direct account with. And so that was certainly major motivation. In addition to that, we've had recent studies that show that American Muslims in general have become more positively disposed towards LGBT, especially if you go and block those results 
by age group. So the younger you get, the more positively inclined younger people are towards it. And so those people don't find uh, traditional theology or certainly the words of the Quran compelling on these types of issues or persuasive. So many of them have been set up for either liberal religious revision or disbelief. Um, and liberal religious division, revision that denies explicit verses and instruction, both in the Quran and from the Prophet's direct sunnah, is not Islam itself anymore to begin with. Okay, if, if I could just, sorry, just jump in there. Sure. Just uh, several days ago in the news, uh, a survey was done for the first time. The majority of members of the Church of England, this is the, yeah. the state uh, established church in, in England, obviously, uh, now support gay marriage. And it's interesting, there was a graph, I think it was in the Daily Telegraph, which tracked uh, uh, Church of England members' support for gay marriage uh, over, uh, uh, adjacent to uh, the general population. And you could see they were very closely allied. So uh, as the general population came to accept gay marriage, so did uh, most people in the Church of England. So we're seeing here, uh, and, and of course, that, that then led to predictable calls from prominent church people to change the teaching of the church, which I, I assume was just only a matter of time now, given the uh, given that fact of the majority of members supporting it. So it's not just Muslims in the States, it's even the good old Church of England here in England. It's the same kind of dynamic uh, occurring, I think. So, sorry. Yeah, I mean, even, even in uh, recently, I was reading an article about a fairly prominent Catholic cardinal yes. may have seen who had yeah. come out yeah. and he essentially said in so many words. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly, but then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. That he disagreed with the Bible on homosexuality. Well, he, he, was, he, wasn't, he wasn't just a prominent cardinal. He was chairman of the European Cardinals Conference. He was like the most right. senior cardinal in Europe. And he publicly said he disagreed with the church's teaching that... Um, certain yeah. kind of acts were sinful and uh, and uh, he was german of course uh, the german church has overwhelmingly just, uh, the catholic church in germany i mean has overwhelmingly decided to endorse the whole range of lgbt agendas actually mm -hmm. just completely and uh, and there hasn't really been much response in the vatican the last time i noticed anyway no they say that francis has shifted the discourse to be more pastorally focused which means yeah. it places less emphasis on moral norms yeah. certainly attenuates the um, explicit mention of things like sin or judgment. Yeah. And so the, a lot of these st early steps are, are certainly underway. Yeah. Um, you know, part of the challenge for us here, obviously, it's not simply that that dynamic is occurring, but it's occurring in a vacuum. It's occurring in a space where Muslim theologians and scholars in the West really not saying a whole lot about this subject. Um, many of them are uh, deciding not to say anything out of um, a climate of fear. Yes. Right. Uh, if I can, I, don't, uh, I promise I won't interrupt anymore, but I think you make such an important oh, no, please do. Um, yeah. is that I, I won't mention their name because uh, it would be completely inappropriate for me to do so. But a very prominent, prominent Islamic uh, scholar who you will know, uh, who came on my channel um, at some point, uh, said before we went recorded um, that he would not be mentioning or talking about this subject. Uh, even though his views are completely orthodox Islamically, obviously, um, because basically he fears for his job. He has a job at a prestigious institution, which I won't mention, um, and he would be targeted and he could lose his job. Uh, now, he has a family, you know, has a house, you know, that this guy has a right to live. And he, he said that he would not be discussing this for fear of retribution from his uh, employers. And that was a stunning, and this is an incredibly senior man. Um, and, you know, and he's, you know, I, 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 I can't judge him. I don't judge him because I'm not in his shoes. I don't have a 
whatever it is job he has. Um, but nevertheless, that's the uh, the, persecu- the the persecution framework that he operates in. He feels he cannot speak out for the retribution that he would experience from the institution he's a part of, and that's very very serious. There is no freedom anymore. The freedom has gone. No, and- and it's it's quite interesting. I, I think that personally, I have a bit more sympathy for people who actually face career um, career consequences for speaking out on issues like this, which you know some people in the academy might certainly. Um, but Muslim scholars, most of them, their place of employment, at least here in the United States, are Muslim institutions themselves. Right. Most of them are not at risk of losing their job. What they are at risk of is losing social credibility. And um, that's, that's really very difficult. You know, um, there's a uh, prominent Catholic, and in fact, he's retired now, Charles Chaput. He was based out of Philadelphia. He wrote a book, actually, it's uh, Strangers in a Strange Land, something oh. along those lines. Nice, t- um, nice title. I like it already. <laughs> yeah, Strangers in a Strange Land, living, living the Catholic faith in a post-Christian world. Yeah. Um, but one of the things, uh, and I sort of glossed the passage, um, I, I just wrote it down before here because I was, I was flipping through it. And he said that one of the worst fates in American public life is being tarred as out of the mainstream. The great fear of the average voter is to be seen as extreme. As citizens, most of us urgently want to be inside the constantly shifting range of acceptable opinions, and that yearning creates a chronic low-grade unease. It also binds us to the fact that Christian faith, by its nature, is very often out of the mainstream. Mm -hmm. And so he was reflecting simply on contemporary politics and what it's done for the Christian faithful. I think for Muslims, it's done the same. I think many Muslim scholars who have decided or determined that it's better not to speak out have done so based on political calculations. They've done so out of fears of social criticism and social censure. I think they've done so out of worries as to how that may be, how those words might be used to tar them. And so there are groups that seem to target Muslims like memory and these Islamophobic groups that take clips and videos from Muslim scholars and reproduce them and scandalize them um, for the purpose of exacerbating anti-Muslim animus. Um, The reality is that all of those are possibilities. I don't dispute that those are possibilities, but I think that those are possibilities and risks that people have to be willing to take on. We cannot allow fear to um, push us into a position of cowardice. Right? We have to be people of strength and confidence. We have to have trust in God and God's promise. We have to be willing to speak out. Look, I, I have a, uh, you know, my career is at stake as well. It's not as if I'm somebody who's so secure in my job such that you know, speaking out on these issues will permanently, um, you know, to just never, never impinge on my own life. But, but, you know, but thankfully, you, you, you are thankfully one of those- it hasn't. Yeah, but you are one of those uh, uh, few people. I mean, maybe I just don't know of the others who have shown immense moral courage to speak okay. out just from the normative Islamic position, the normative Sunni position. This is not some extreme position. It's just the historic mainstream position, which is clearly articulated in the Quran and the Sunnah, uh, consensus of the scholars forever. And you have shown this moral courage, uh, which is um, incredible, uh, given the extraordinary pressures that we're all under now to keep quiet at best or to... Uh, give give a kind of um, uh, insincere assent uh, at worst. So um, no, or, or kudos to you, Mobin. Well, I think I think one of the things that happens is that young people see the Muslim community and they're able to read between the lines. Mm. They understand what's going on when people aren't discussing subjects like this, and when they recognize that Muslims are ashamed, embarrassed, or simply not confident in their own convictions and beliefs. How are they going to have any confidence in those beliefs or see them as reasonable? And then the final thing that's been very damaging, especially over the past decade, has been the lionizing of Muslim activists and political actors who have made LGBT activism a central part of their political efforts and activities. So people whose public profile is predicated on a very strong and devout commitment to LGBT orthodoxies are now looked at in the Muslim community as heroes and those people are featured in major Muslim programs, conferences, um, events. And so the, the concern here, concern level that I have, 
been growing for some time. And this was the first article that I put together, which was a sustained critique of that issue, while also taking into account some of the justifications that have been produced and made mm. by certain Muslim scholars to try to argue for the legitimacy of Muslim activism promoting different types of LGBT efforts, or at a minimum, being okay with things like gay marriage. And so I felt like those were all things that needed to be addressed um, and needed to be reviewed and analyzed critically. Okay. I mean, do you want to go through your article or, sh or shall I ask you some questions about the article as you've... Um... Either way, it's up to you. I'm no, fine. I'm... No, I'll leave, I'll leave it to you if, if you'd like to go through it, because obviously I don't want to cherry pick things and miss important points that you might want to bring up as well. I can, I can begin if you want by just providing a broad outline of what yes. I did. So one, oh, of the things that, yeah, one of the things I try to do in just about every single article that I write is to start by laying out the moral stakes. And I think it's important for Muslims simply to realize what, how this issue is intersected by theological and moral concerns, that we're not discussing this simply as social scientists or quote-unquote conservative political actors that are concerned by the rise of a liberal political or social movement, but we are people that have devout and serious religious commitments. And those religious commitments are anchored in revelation, in our submission to God, in our obedience to the example of the Prophet Muhammad, and that all of those things entail, entail a necessary position on sexual ethics. And that those positions aren't ancillary to the tradition, they aren't ancillary to revelation, but they're essential. They're central parts of the revelatory message. It is a key part of revelation. It appears recurrently in the Quran, and it does so in the Prophet Sunnah as well. And so beginning from there, I transition into political questions, and I start by evaluating what I call theopolitical arguments, which are arguments that are made anchored in a serious examination of traditional theology and specifically jurisprudential literature, so fiqh literature. So there have, been, there have been arguments that have been made by certain scholars engaging in those writings to produce new arguments to say, based on those prior arguments, we're going to analogize from them and try to produce a framework within which Muslims can become liberal political actors, more or less. They can be in favor of gay marriage or some sort of libertarian compromise. They can work with LGBT groups in activities that assert or affirm their rights and so on. So I begin by doing those. And I'd say that those types of arguments or those arguments rather are the ones that I give the most time to simply because I think that those are the most serious arguments, especially for people who are concerned with Islam itself and the sustainability of Islam. Thereafter, I transition into arguments that I, um, referred to as more socio-political arguments, the types of arguments that simply look at the political landscape and say, we have no choice. And so those, those revolve around contemporary liberal ideas such as intersectionality, allyship, um, you know, playing the political game and realpolitik. And so I engage in all of that to show that even in light of its own purported and professed aims and ends, LGBT activism, in fact, has little justification and makes no sense. Mm. And I conclude by highlighting just how aggressive and hegemonic LGBT discourse has become in the West and how America is, is really the center of that. It is the, it is the um, foundation and the epicenter of LGBT missionary activities throughout the world. Um, Joe Biden, one of the first things he did after his election was talk about getting more muscular globally on LGBT rights. And so, you know, his first meetings with the African Union, you know, some of his core address related to affirming LGBT rights for African nations. Um, when it came to Pride Month, his first Pride Month, one of the first directives was that rainbow flags go up in every single American embassy around the world, um, even in countries where LGBT rights aren't affirmed. So you have this provocative move yeah. to show where, show where your convictions are and where your commitments are. And you have this going on more and more. Um, you have yeah, I've, I've, seen, I've seen photographs, I've seen pictures of rainbow flags flying from a big American embassies 
around yep. the Muslim world. Uh, and of course, you know, American military and cultural power is hegemonic. So this is a real statement to the Muslim world. You know, we're coming for you. This is where this is where you've got to go. This is what America is telling you to celebrate. So this is uh, very provocative, I think. And it, it was seen as very, but it was seen as extremely provocative. Absolutely. And if you look at the program of Western, Western cultural imperialism, LGBT is an essential part of that today. It is a bludgeon that is weaponized against Muslim countries to treat them and to judge them as backwards, to sanction them, to dispossess their people. Um, this type of legislation is routinely and repeatedly getting passed and is becoming ever more aggressive and punitive. Um, and not only that, if you look outside of that, you see that the cultural apparatus, the media apparatus of America now is global and it advances itself in Muslim countries. So you look at Netflix and Amazon Prime and Apple Plus, the type of television shows that they're producing, the media that they're producing, and they are now actively producing that media in different languages and they're pushing it out in Muslim countries. So you have Arabic language programming, Urdu language programming, uh, you know, Turkish language programming, programming that is in the language of Muslims in their own countries that is trying to advance and inaugurate a new world for Muslims that is socially liberal and especially liberal on matters of gender and sex. But I think that nothing really has changed because before the no. current era, the West no. was, was still doing it. It was still imposing its worldview, its agenda, its norms on the Muslim world. But then there were different ones. So it was the Christian missionaries who came in on the back of invading armies uh, and uh, to try and civilize literally the word. That, that word was used recently, of course, in the recent um, political events, but to civilize the Muslim world. So the West is still at it. It's the same thing. It's the same oh. old game, although the details of the packaging might have changed. It's the same kind of thing. So this has been going on. Absolutely. For centuries. It's not just in the last couple of years. <clears throat> Absolutely. But the, I think the difference is that in some ways, the evangelical work or the missionary work of Christian missionaries in the Muslim world is much more obviously a program of indoctrination and mission. People recognize that there are conversion attempts taking place in our country to remove us from our faith. With LGBT activism, people don't see that. They don't see the way in which, you know, you get a new program that has a gay or lesbian character in it, and they're speaking about their sexuality now in places and locations where that has never occurred previously. Yeah, I, was in, I was in Turkey back in November, and I remember speaking to some brothers there in Istanbul, and they said exactly what you just said. For the first time in, in Turkish media, on Turkish television, you get that those kinds of characters uh, you know, having that, those kind of so, self-promoting identities it, 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 on Turkish media. And this was a new thing. So absolutely right. Yeah, if people understood this as a foreign ideology and they saw its missionary zeal and what is actually taking place is a, is a program of coercion yep. and universal coercion, that I think would be a better framework for them to work within and operate within. At least they would see it for what it is, but they don't see it that way. They simply see it as a you know different narrative that's being presented, complex characters, new television and programming, getting with the times. Um, we have to open up. And so in the past decade, especially over the past five years, you see a liberalizing um, you see liberalizing moves that are occurring in traditionally very socially conservative countries. And those moves have been, have been more excessive and more radical in the past five years than anything we've seen in the 50 years prior to that. And so you look at just how fast the Muslim world is changing, often on account of the type of seeping um, programming and cultural authority of the West that is being pushed in its own lands. And it becomes a greater obligation for us who are residing in America to actually stand up and speak against this and to draw attention to just how destructive all of this is for Muslims. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you mentioned some of the, uh, the strategies uh, adopted by some quite eminent um, Islamic scholars in America, um, Professor Jonathan yeah. Brown being one of them, and uh, there's another um, eminent scholar as well. And, and they've advanced serious arguments, theological Islamic arguments for um, the, for engagement and alliance and even 
promoting gay marriage within a certain theological framework, drawing on historic experiences of Muslims with the Zoroastrians, for example, and self-marriage uh, and, and, and the, the way Sharia apparently accommodated that. Um, and you're quite critical of that, and you draw on the actual detail of these arguments and compare them with what really happened. Do you, do you want to explore some of those uh, yes, yeah, so, from people like Brown and others, and uh, yeah, and, Brown and Sherman Jackson. Those are really yeah, Sherman Jackson. Yeah. These are very distinguished scholars. Uh, absolutely, scholars. absolutely, yeah. and they're both people I have a lot of respect for. Yeah. But this specific argument really began. I, I think Dr. Sherman Jackson is really the first person, the progenitor of the argument, so to speak. Um, and, and this argument is anchored in a work of Ibn Al Qayyim's. Mm. It's a very famous medieval scholar, a student of the yeah, great scholar, Ibn absolutely. And so he's a person who has a lot of and maintains a very respectable position in, in the Muslim imagination, certainly in Sunni normative Islamic doctrine. And he has a book which relates to the rulings of the Dhimma, or the protected peoples that are not Muslim within Muslim societies. And that book really deals with questions related to how to negotiate their specific laws that relate to the community within a Muslim society, a Muslim political society, rather. And one of those questions speaks about marriages and how do we adjudge marriages that are invalid under Islamic law but have been carried out by non-Muslims. So he says, right? so, so these are illegitimate marriages by any Islamic definition, but they may be legitimate in those other traditions and in other sort of Dhimma community religions. So what do we do? And so he begins by providing a broad stroke outline of how Muslims can engage with that. And so he, he offers two core principles. He says, firstly, if those marriages are legitimate within their own faith traditions and they are conducting those marriages and recognizing and acknowledging them within their own quarters and in their own spaces, we're not going to offer any objection to them. If, however, they bring them to Muslim courts, Muslim judges, they want our opinion on them, we're not going to recognize them as legitimate. And so that's a general rule when it comes to marriages that are invalid in Islam. And so he offers, by, by way of example, a number of examples, right? Because Islamic marriages have a number of preconditions for them to be legitimate or legal and valid. So a woman, for instance, has to have the approval of her wedi or her male guardian when she gets married. Um, if that, you know, if a Christian or Jew were to get married without a wedi present, for instance, um, he says, you know, they, these are the types of marriages. You know, a man, for instance, if he divorces his wife three times consecutively, he can't remarry her a fourth time without marrying someone else first. And then if he were to divorce that person, he can go back to that wife. But he said if they were to divorce three times and then they were to wed again, again, these are the types of things that in Islamic law we don't recognize or acknowledge as legitimate. But if they were to do so, they're invalid by our own sharia, but they're things that we're letting them judge according to their own laws. And then he transitions into the question of Zoroastrian incest marriages which is really the argument that Jackson and Brown produced to say that, look, Muslims in the past have tolerated incest marriages within their own territories. And here's Ibn Qayyim who endorses them. Therefore, we should tolerate and be okay with gay marriages in our own society. Just to be clear, so incest marriages uh, that, that uh, we're talking about here is when a man marries his mother or uh, marries his sister. Uh, right. Uh, so I'd just be absolutely clear what we're talking about here. Practices which are clearly abhorrent and unacceptable Islamically, but in, yeah. in certain Zoroastrian communities um, at that time, they were practiced um, as actual marriages. Um, and you know, how, and, and the, the, the Zoroastrian, these Zoroastrians were living under Muslim rule, so they, they had some rights to practice their faith, uh, including their marriage customs. So well, what, what did the Sharia do about that? Did it accept them or did it forbid them and so on? So. Well, what's really interesting and why I, I, I wrote it, or part of the reason I, I sort of produced this, this discursive on it, was that one, Ibn al-Qayyim, in fact, does not approve of those marriages, nor does he endorse the idea that Muslims should tolerate them. In fact, what he says is that scholars have differed 
on Zoroastrian marriages. Some say that they should just take the same approach that they've taken towards Christian and Jewish invalid marriages and apply them to Zoroastrians. Others have said no, that if incest marriages occur, they should be forcefully dissolved. And he, um, the way he explains those differences is by situating them in different contexts. And he says that the tolerance for those marriages occurred at a time when Muslims didn't have the political authority to do anything about them. And so this was very early in sort of the development and growth of the Islamic community. They were nascent, they were politically expanding, but they didn't have authority in different spaces, especially spaces and places where Zoroastrians were a majority or constituted a large number of people and attempting to dissolve their marriages would have created a political conflict. He says later on, he said under the Caliph Ahmad, you actually see that position changing hmm. and you see the forceful dissolution position coming in and he endorses that position. Yeah. And what's really, what's really interesting about, well, the, and there are two things that I find very interesting about that. The first thing that it was, that's interesting about his discussion on this is that even when he's acknowledging the first and early position, he says unequivocally that such a tolerance could never be extended or expanded to homosexual acts. Yes. He says that even, even as they held that position, they would never have done so for homosexual acts, for sodomy and for homosexual relationships and acts. So this, this is ironic because th th this argument is, is advanced by people like Brown and others in, yeah. in a way to kind of create this space where, yeah, well, we can allow them to have their gay marriages. But in fact, yeah. this is actually not quite how, how it happened, uh, actually, in, in, in uh, Ibn Kayyim when he discussed this. this is one, he didn't approve it at all, um, no. the irony of this. He didn't, he, didn't even, he didn't approve of the incest marriages, but he also didn't, he, he was very explicit about it. even those who did approve of it would never have extended it. Yeah. To, to approve of sodomy. To, to leave sodomy. Absolutely. Yeah. In addition to that, one of the things that's very interesting is that he goes on this digression where he speaks about different possibilities for how religions can interact vis-a-vis -vis marriage in a Muslim society. And he asks the question about a Zoroastrian male marrying a Christian female. Mm. And he says, is that permissible? Is that something that we can allow? Or is it permissible for a, <clears throat> for a Christian female to be a slave within the household of a Zoroastrian male? And in both cases, he says no. And he says no, indifferent to what Christians themselves think about that position. He doesn't care whether or not Christians are going to allow a, a Christian female to marry a Zoroastrian male. He's saying as Muslims, we cannot allow it. And he says so, and he's very explicit about this, that Christians have a superior religion to Zoroastrians. And it is in the interest of the Muslim community to maintain that religious hierarchy, to not allow the Christian community under the aegis of Muslim political authority to be subordinated to a religion that is weaker and less legitimate than it. And I found that to be very instructive when it comes to the type of society that we are interested in investing in and advancing, the idea that we would take a step back and endorse gay marriages rather than heterosexual marriages and marriages and institutions tied and connected to the establishment of a family and all of the connotations that come with that and to abandon the work of family in a society like ours, I found to be very unfortunate and um, it was one of the reasons that I wrote against it is because I said this, this not only misrepresents Ibn Qayyim's opinion, but it actually diverges from the type of ethics that he very clearly mm. is attempting to sustain for Muslims in their own lands, let alone for us here, where if we're going to draw something or take some inspiration from Ibn Qayyim, mm. it should in fact be a recognition of how certain social orders can impinge on the sustainability of a real Muslim community. He didn't see the marriage between Zoroastrians and Christians as something that Muslims should just otherwise not care about or not concern themselves with. 
he recognized the impact of these things on Muslims. And that's one of the things that he discusses very explicitly, even when he talks about liwat, even when he talks about incest marriages. How is this going to affect the integrity of the Muslim faithful? And for us here today in the West, the impact of gay marriage and LGBT activism, the LGBT rights movement has a very direct impact on the integrity of the Muslim faithful, an observable one, an obvious one. And so the idea that we can be indifferent to it, using arguments that are being misrepresented in in a great many ways, is something that I thought needed to be contested and addressed. This is a point you make in in your paper, um, which, uh, uh, by the way, uh, here it is. Um, You can download, and I'll link to it in the description below, is that this factor, the, the impact on the spiritual welfare, the soul of the community, this Muslim community in America and elsewhere, doesn't really seem to be a factor in discussions about this. It's all about, well, you know, can we acknowledge their rights? Oh, yeah, we can. And here's an argument based on uh, the alleged Zoroastrian incest marriages. But the effect on the, the spiritual health, integrity, well-being or the Muslim Ummah, it just doesn't figure in these deliberations, it seems. And which is and you pointed this out. This is remarkable, which shows the direction of travel here is always is always to accommodate the, the stronger, more powerful cultural force rather than look to our own communities. And one of one of the great areas of frustration for me, especially on discussions like LGBT, has been a sort of unsophisticated political discourse that continues to abound in Muslim spaces in the West and especially in America. It is not uncommon to hear Muslim authorities and other Muslim actors of influence say things like, well, Islam really doesn't have a politics, hmm. right? Or to say things like, well, you know, we can't impose morality on other people. Or the job of the job of the state is not to endorse a specific moral schema. Right? In so many words, they'll say things like that. Or we just need to be tolerant. Or we have to support their freedoms in order to have our own freedoms. And these are extremely superficial ways of seeing the world. Even serious seculars. wouldn't see those things as coherent. Even they would concede that society and politics is a moral domain, Mm. that law is not amoral, but Mm. is intensely moral, that any legal apparatus has to grapple with fundamentally moral questions. Well, one of the examples you you give in your your paper is when the Prophet, upon every peace, was apparently powerless in Mecca before uh, the migration to Medina. Uh, The Quran speaks out powerfully against the the practice of killing uh, 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 children, but basically by burying them alive, unwanted children, and spoke out against this abominable crime, which was part of the social order and practice and acceptable custom in that milieu in Mecca at that time. And the Quran was very clear. This is unacceptable practice. So here is the, the Quran is speaking, in a sense, politically, if you like to use that word, um, and culturally, it, it, in the earliest days before it, um, the Prophet became the head of state in Medina. So uh, there's a very interesting example. There are other examples, of course. Uh, the, the court of free slaves is, is a very early um, instruction, you know, uh, in the, the the short surahs at the the end of the Quran, you know, it's a great act of uh, charity to free a slave, and that, that's a direct attack on the the acceptability of this practice in uh, the ancient world. Yeah, and even if you look at the example of other prophets, we have prophet after prophet in the Quran that has no political authority, that by our own social standards is living as a minority, mm. is disempowered and is ministering to people not simply about theology and doctrine and God, but also about moral right and wrong. And sometimes that means addressing their standards of buying and trading. So the Prophet Shu'aib comes to a society where people are cheating one another and being unjust with their buying and trading practices, and he's seeking to rectify that alongside his core message of God. You have other prophets that have to go to people and, you know, the prophet Luth obviously is a very prominent example where he has to go and speak to people's sexual ethics. And he does so in a society where he's definitely a minority. He's a minor. I mean, even in his own household, his wife isn't on the same page with him. So, so the prophet Luth is not saying to the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, well, no. 
you have your freedom and I, I'm a minority. Um, I, I, you, you know, you have your freedom. Please respect my freedom to preach my message. That wasn't what Prophet Locke was about, was he? And nor, nor was he ignoring their sexual practices and simply talking about God. He was doing both, right? His, his, his belief in God and the ministry that he was tasked with carrying out required him to discuss both. It, there was no secular paradigm within which he viewed his own faith. And this is one of the things that I think is a byproduct for, of just living in a secular liberal society for so long, is that you internalize secular mores about yourself. You view your own religion as something that should be privatized, that is relevant to the home or to your own church. Um, it, it is something that you discuss and you act upon in your own household. But any time it exists in the public square, it should only exist in a way that is very indirect. So being a good person, being nice to others, treating others well, um, you know, doing for your brother what you would, you know, loving for your brother what you want for yourself, the golden rules. Some of those things are things that people would say, okay, those are good things to bring out. Um, but when it actually comes to your beliefs, when it comes to your values, the argument is always, well, we can't really discuss or talk about those things in polite society. And we don't want to be, we don't want to be tarnished by talking about them, especially at a time in which we're beleaguered, which we're being targeted by different groups, and so on and so forth. And so that type of insecurity actually leads to the self-secularizing of the Muslim mind, at which point your faith is something that you come to see as largely arbitrary. Many of its rules are just they're abstract. They're, they're not things that have any material effect or consequence. They're not the type of things that we should actually call towards or stand for, especially when it comes to some of the core essentials of its message. And that has a demoralizing effect over time. It really does. Because what happens is that as a community, you, you feel like you are constantly playing a rigged game, that you can't ever speak on your own terms. You can't ever assert your own values, and you are always the loser. It is like you're playing a game of chess on a board where the pieces have been organized in a way to practically preclude the possibility of your own victory. And young people who grow up witnessing loss after loss after loss from religion and their own religious community are going to want to side with the victor. And... For me, I think that that is a very devastating consequence of the stance that Muslims have taken, because they have, they have proven to young people that if you want to be a confident public figure, the way you can be a confident public figure is by becoming a very aggressive political liberal that sides with the most extreme elements of left-wing politics in, modern American poli in the modern American political landscape, and by endorsing all of its pieties, by invoking all of its jargon, and by becoming a true believer in its religion, in its religion, with a very superficial, tertiary, or otherwise thin commitment to Islam itself. That Islam is simply a handmaiden to the secular politics, which is where their real passions lie. I mean, there's a point you make very powerfully, I think, in your article. You say being, you know, what is what is a Muslim? You know, being a Muslim is not just, well, in the West, it's a, an assertion of identity. You know, identify as X, Y, I'm a Muslim, I'm this, I'm that. But you're saying, no, 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 the word Muslim has entailments. It, it, it has, it, it's connected to a package, basically, um, and it's not just a, a self-designator. You can't just say I'm a Muslim and then carry on behaving in this radical, liberal, secular way uh, and adopting this, this language and these attitudes, being a Muslim has entailments, doesn't it? Uh, and in fact, this is one of the things that I think we're going to have to really take on. There is a growing thesis, which is the racialization thesis. And this is a very, um, it's a growing argument, especially in the civic advocacy space and for Muslims who are engaged in the defense of Muslims as a political community. And that thesis is simply that, at least for political purposes, Muslims are better served when they refactor their own communal identity on the basis of race. And to think of themselves as a racialized community and to look at anti-Muslim animus and Islamophobia as a form of racism, as opposed to something that relates to their substantive beliefs and values, right? Mm. 
And so they say that that is the more politically useful way to operate, even if, and there, there are a lot of consequences to that. And so, you know, that's the type of issue that I think is very important for Muslims to take on. Nevertheless, I think one of the byproducts of that, among other things, is that you reduce Islam into a sort of brown ethnic identity that is associated with a Muslimish sounding name. Hmm. And that anyone that is able to check off those boxes immediately becomes a spokesperson, a thinker, or a symbol of Islam itself. Hmm. And that is a unrecognizable definition of Islam or Muslim. It's certainly not one that would be, you know, that one could recognize in any serious reading of the Quran, Sunnah, hmm. Muslim tradition, some history, anybody with an elementary education in Islam itself. Yeah, because obviously being a Muslim it has entailments of belief in God, submission, submission to God, not submission to the zeitgeist, but submission to yeah. God as the sole lawgiver and giver of authority and command and halal, halal haram uh, and, and his prophets, of course, and the Quran and the Sunnah. You know, this is, the, this is the, the core identity of the Muslim. It's not the word Muslim in a multicultural society. And therefore, you know, it, it is a theological, it's a religious definition. Um, well, and one of the things that I express and I, I often have frustration with is this whole idea about, well, don't bring your more, don't bring your morals to the table. Don't try to impose morality on others. What really matters is just abstractly what you believe on specific issues. So they would say, look, well, you should believe something is wrong, but how you act politically or what you think is in the best interest of your community at a given moment can be completely independent and distinct from what you believe is wrong or right. Mm. Those two things can exist in harmony. And that's the type of thing some people, in fact, encourage. And the type of thing that I try to point out in the article is that once you, once you adopt that type of framework, it never ends. Yes. It never ends. You, you can apply that to anything, in which case Muslims have no moral responsibility in the political sphere towards anything. There's no moral responsibility to speak out against military interventionism. Right. Why should we even oppose Islamophobia? Because what should really matter is that we internally believe attacking or targeting Muslims disproportionately and discriminating against them is wrong. But what we do politically vis-a-vis -vis Islamophobia should just be a matter of individual judgment that, because we don't want to impose our values and norms because now what we're doing in that situation is acting in a self-interested way based on our identity as Muslims, and we're not supposed to bring that to the table to begin with. We've been told that. And so there's a lot of incoherences and inconsistencies once you begin adopting the type of framework that they encourage, because at that point, you're just acting amorally in a Machiavellian sense with no principles to speak of. And if that is what you're trying to normalize and mainstream for Muslims, what you are doing is you are creating secular liberal actors who have no relationship to their faith in a meaningful way. And you are setting yourself up for the elimination and eradication of your faith. I mean, that's what you're doing. You know, I was, uh, I was reading through, this is a book, this the one? Actually, no, I was reading through uh, Shabir Akhtar, actually, Shabir Akhtar, put it yeah. on the second mind. Oh, sure yeah. You yeah, no, I'm a big fan of uh, Dr. Shabir. He's a, an academic at the University of Oxford. He's been on blogging theology. Um, I have several of his books just up there behind me. Um, I, I think they're extraordinary works, actually. You know, he, he has a section where he talks about the moral language of Christianity and what's happened. Mm, mm, absolutely. And he, says, and he says the moral language of Christianity is now decrepit and abused. Yes. Only a poet saint could renew the religious employment of English in order to invigorate the cultural project of rescuing words such as sin and virtue for their original and intended senses. Even the word Christianity has unction about, about it as do righteous, Jesus, and salvation. Religious life languishes in the West, while intellectual life flourishes and reaches new heights. By contrast, even the most secularized Muslim would not use Muhammad as an expletive in casual conversation, it would be an embarrassing attempt at blasphemy. Yes. So he's talking about what's happened vis-a-vis -vis this type of secularization in the West to Christian communities. Oh, yeah. And if you look at what's happened to Jewish communities as well, you have to ask yourself, is that what you want to have happen to Muslims? 
But the point is, it hasn't. The point is, it hasn't. Well, it sounds like it already has happened, but globally, anyway, that hasn't happened. Although it's encroaching. Um, But yes, he has some very harsh, uh, uh, real politic words uh, about Christianity in the West. Is basically he calls it secular humanism with a with a religious veneer. So the essence of Christianity in the West, certainly in the Church of England, if you look at their moral passions, what they really get worked up about. It's none of the traditional Christian themes of sin and and so on. It's about uh, the latest woke agenda. That's what really gets them excited. And they issue papers on it and the Archbishop of Canterbury, you know, makes uh, statements on it. And, uh, you know, this is just secularism, pure and simple, with, with with a mitre. And a clerical garb, <clears throat> and that's it. That's you know, welcome to Christianity. <laughs> so uh, yeah, there's there's a very there's Islam a- is not like that. Sorry, the the, the vast majority of Muslims I meet are uh, remain uh, although they, they are embattled by the forces that assail them, nevertheless do retain the integrity of their faith, although they are under attack, as you eloquently describe in your paper. Yeah, there's uh, actually the Evangelical Lutheran Church. Not long ago, there's a very prominent pastor. Her name was Nadia Boltz Weber, and she was based in Denver, I want to say. She had a very large church there. She's a woman. She has tattoos all over herself, this and that. At cool. her church, at her church, they have they had, I think she left the church recently. She outgrew it. Um, but at her church, they had a minister of fabulousness that was like a drag queen. She would do these retreats, which would be young Christian retreats, and they would have a bonfire. And everybody would bring their celibacy rings and they would throw them in the bonfire together. Gosh. And she's an advocate of pornography, of extra and premarital sex, all of that. And she's a very prominent speaker in that church. So when you look at the condition of Western Christianity, um, you know, anything representing orthodox normative Christian faith and belief is really, it's, it's hanging on by the ropes. And so you do have some Christians that are fighting for that. Yes. But, But the, their works can oftentimes come off as very combative because yes. they feel they, they feel under siege all the time. They are. And yeah, they are. And many of them don't have the sophistication or wherewithal to engage with a lot of contemporary issues. Some are better, others are worse. Yeah. Um, but it's, I, I think there's a lot of instruction that Muslims can take from that, right? Muslims can benefit from those works and recognize because they've been doing this longer. They've, had, they've been having to deal with these challenges for a longer period of time. They've seen their own churches split over questions like homosexuality. And Muslim communities are simply later to this table and later to this stage. And I think at a minimum, what is not going to work is simply not talking about it mm. or, or just trying to make arguments to diffuse the tension that Muslims feel over issues like this, which I think is what undergirds a lot of the justifications that are provided. Because what most Muslims want is what Charles Shippu describes. They don't want to be out, out of step with the mainstream. Yeah. They don't want to be in a position where they cannot have residence in a regnant and established political movement. And if they're able to find residence in a political movement that has authority, is fashionable, is chic and likable, especially by young people, then that is all the better, which is why so many young Muslims have subscribed to progressive political theology as their political activist framework. Yes, indeed. I, this is all, in a sense, rather depressing. I, I mean, can, can we move towards um, consideration of, you know, what is to be done uh, and uh, about this, strategies for survival? Uh, this is a question that keep, keeps on coming up um, in, in conversations I've noticed with other Muslims. Um, you know, what, what is the solution? How do we find our, our way? How do we survive? Or, or is basically the game up? Are, are we now going to go the way of the Christians and the Jews? And there are some hadith even that might suggest that, that we will go down the same hole that they will. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, to be honest, we don't, it may go that direction, certainly. It seems to be heading in that direction. I think we have to recognize our own limitations. Um, we recognize that humans are complex and that you know, we, don't, we don't look at human beings as merely material that deterministically respond to a certain set of conditions and circumstances. We recognize human beings are mind, body, and soul, and that we don't guide people based on our efforts. It's God who guides them. In fact, in the Quran itself, God says that to the Prophet, and says, indeed, you don't guide whom you love, but rather God guides whomsoever he wills. Yes. So Allah is the source of guidance. 
Yes. In that vein, our responsibility is not so much to ensure guidance, but is to provide people the possibility of guidance and to understand guidance for what it is. And that's the call that I make towards the end, which is to transcend partisan politics. It's not to say that we need to now become political conservatives. In America, at least, the majority of Republicans are in favor of gay marriage now. The majority. Really, the majority, no majority of Donald Trump's party in the United States are now pro-gay marriage. That's interesting. In fact, it, an underreported part of Trump's presidency was his support for LGBT rights. Yeah, that's true. Donald Trump, Donald Trump was the first president who, during his presidential nomination um, at the GOP convention, had a gay speaker. He is the first president, I believe, in American history that mentioned gay rights in his inaugural address. Um, there was some... You know, there, was some, there, was, there were some whispers and rumors about him attempting to pass laws or, or drafting laws that would have curtailed certain LGBT rights and spaces while ensuring or assuring um, the autonomy of religious communities. Those things never came to fruition. No. Um, you know, his, the main power brokers in his inner circle, especially Ivanka, Jared, those types of people, were very um, publicly in favor of LGBT rights and stood alongside it. And so his, his politics and his presidency were not ones that were opposed to LGBT rights. In fact, the type of examples that the left produced in his presidency to show or to try to argue that Donald Trump was hostile to the LGBT movement was very superficial and even stupid, right? I mean, I think one of, one of the common memes that came about was a meme where they showed the White House during Pride Month under Trump's presidency and then under Obama's. And during Obama's presidency, it was flanked with rainbow colors. And so there were these rainbow lights that were shining on the White House. And during Trump's presidency, those lights weren't used. It was just plain color lights. And so you just saw the White House for what it was. And they said, look at like we're moving backwards. That was the contention. Deep. I said, <laughs> yeah, but I said substantively, you actually look at laws and policies. He actually hasn't been a departure from what, what Obama did. And in fact, has been advancing a lot of those things in negative directions. And so, you know, when it comes to politics today, there really isn't a meaningful political difference. There are some issues today where political conservatives seem to be more congenial to our interests on the issues of social morality, especially when it comes to transgenderism today. At least some political conservatives are willing to say things like biological men shouldn't participate in women's sports, right? <laughs> which, is, which is the minimum you would expect, but that's, that's not that's a rejected position amongst liberal orthodoxy today. Oh. Uh, Orthodox liberals, uh, any Democrat would be, you know, uh, reticent to stand behind a claim like that. They, they view it as discrimination. And so, you know, this is... It's not, it's not discrimination again. This is what I find so amusing. There's a recent yeah. thing, I'm not going to mention names, but yesterday or day before, there was some guy who decided he was a woman and um, he was going to carry on swimming against... Uh, 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 you know, sorry, swim against women now as competitors. And of course he won, you know, because yeah. he's bigger, stronger, stronger arms. And, yeah. uh, but, you know, to criticize that is discrimination against people like him. But what about the women who are discriminated against by having biological men compete against them in sport? I mean, they're yeah, victims was, because they're, yeah, they're no longer on a, on a, a level playing field anymore. Yeah. What's really astonishing about that. I, I think that was the university of Pennsylvania and that, that, that guy actually, you know, won some sort of really competitive yeah. championship. Yeah. He's a big guy. I mean, this is a real yeah. big guy, you know, who's a woman who yeah. wins. What a surprise against some women. And but to criticize him, he'll be the victim. But what about all the women who lost because a bloke is competing against? Well, there's, there's, there's a swimming website that actually analyzed his performances in the past and even his performance in that championship run where he set records. And they actually argue that there's good evidence to support that he's not putting in 100% all the time. What, what, why would he need to anyway? That he's actually sandbagging in performances because he doesn't want to come off. He doesn't want the victory. He doesn't want to generate scandal, right? <laughs> he doesn't want his wins to be so you know, self-evident yeah, and so drastic. But this is so destroyed sport. Sport is now destroyed because once yeah. you allow that to happen, there's yeah. no longer any fair game in sport. There's no longer fair sports. It's rigged. Yeah. <laughs> you can't and win. So, mm. And so in, a, in an environment like this, what I call for Muslims to do is simply to transcend 
partisan politics, to not view every issue through the lens or prism of right and left-wing political activism, but to instead act as moral citizens, as people who care about, who care for good for those around them, who are invested in trying to establish and advance good for society, and to do so in the face of criticism and censure. Right? I mean, Islam is not a popularity contest. It is revelation and its guidance, and it is a message of truth and goodness for those around us. And that's what we should, if we truly care about people around us, that's what we should stand for. And I think if we can, if we can adopt that type of position, you know, many people say, oh, Islam is not left or right. You'll hear this, you're, you'll hear this a lot today, which is true. But they'll say that, and then they'll proceed to basically engage in left-wing activism for day after day, and then endorse all sorts of liberal ideas. You say, well, if Islam is neither left or right, why are we constantly capitulating to the left wing or simply um, refactoring <clears throat> and and grafting left-wing politics on Islam as if the two are entirely commensurable. And that, that seems to me to be a direct contradiction to your prior claim. And so I think when people are able to speak from a place of security vis-a-vis -vis their own faith, they're able to produce something that's very, very unique and distinct. And it may not be popular, but nevertheless, I think it won't be accused of simply being beholden to certain partisan interests. And I think as part of that, we will find bedfellows. I think we'll find others who are equally interested in matters like social morality. And so, for instance, in spite of just how bad some Christian groups have gone, there are serious Christians who are invested in the recovery of family life in the West. Right. There's the National Marriage Project with Brad Wilcox. It's in the University of Virginia. They've done a lot of good work on the importance of fatherhood, motherhood, right. or the family itself. They're dedicated to that. Um, you have folks like Mary Eberstadt, who's been writing on this for years now. She and her husband both have done a lot to advance a really serious dialogue on the collapse of family life in the West and the consequences of that. Um, you have folks like Helen Alvarez, a professor of law, very committed Catholic woman who writes about things like and speaks about things like cohabitation and the toxicness of cohabitation arrangements where men and women who are unmarried just live together for long periods of time and how that has no relationship to marriage itself and why marriage is important. She endorses and speaks positively about a family life, of the seriousness of children. Um, these are all things that, you know, that they're serious people. These are not partisan political actors. They're I, not. I all of them are Christians, by the way. There are some secular thinkers as well who also yeah. managed to transcend that, that and, and make some important contributions. I'm also reminded by the uh, the late Roger Scruton as a British philosopher, social <laughs> commentator, uh, famous conservative uh, thinker uh, who um, moved away from perhaps more crude Islamophobic rhetoric in his later years. Uh, he had yeah. a wonderful uh, dialogue with uh, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf at Zaytuno Institute, which you can see yeah. on YouTube. Really recommend it. I mentioned him because, um, you know, uh, much, much of what he says is very compatible with Islam. And he provides some profound critiques of the modernity and the values that are being forced upon us. I mean, he is an ally, even though yeah. he's not a Muslim. Uh, he was a Church of England, obviously, and a, and a conservative and had historically said things which were hostile, but moved to a, a deeper appreciation, I think, beneath the surface rivalries between our civilizations, understood what Islam was really about and uh, became a very mature thinker. And he's probably Britain's greatest uh, philosopher since um uh, since the 17th century. He, he's quite extraordinary. And, and he very recently died masses and masses of books. Uh, so he's an ally, as I'm trying to say, uh, uh, in, in this. Uh, and, um, uh, but I, I like it in, in, your, in your paper, you say, uh, in doing so, we must remember that we do not control hearts. Indeed, even the prophet upon whom be peace was told by Allah in the Quran, you, prophet, cannot guide whomever you wish to the truth. Rather, it is Allah who guides whomever he wills. And I think that's that's a very refreshing reminder that, um, you know, at the end of the day, in terms of people embracing the truth and accepting Islam is God who opens hearts, not our own agitation and activism. Obviously, Dawa is providing information, but it's, it's God that uh, turns hearts to him, not us. But, uh, Absolutely. We can't we have responsibilities. We cannot abdicate those responsibilities. 
what happens as a function or as a result of us acting in moral and honest and genuine ways in expressing the truth, we don't control. We try to be deliberate. We exercise discernment. We try to present the message in a way that people will be amenable to receiving it. We do our best to engage people in a thoughtful discourse. We engage in the work of persuasion. But at the end of the day, we don't control what people are going to be persuaded by, what they're going to accept. We recognize that in certain social and cultural conditions and in certain spiritual conditions, people are going to be less receptive mm. to the message. And certainly, we, you know, depending on the state of a person's heart, they may not be open to really receiving the message in full. They may reject it. That happened to the prophets. Many of them were rejected by their people. So we would be in good company if that did happen. But perhaps they will accept it, right? We can't foreclose on that possibility either. We don't know what, how people are going to respond to the message. We don't know how many people are going to respond positively to the message of Islam itself. And look at it and say, wow, this is actually addressing a lot of the problems that we're seeing in a world where people have been disoriented and destabilized, where people are searching for identities, where people are completely lost and looking for meaning and purpose in their lives. Perhaps Islam has something to say about that. By restoring a meaningful family life, by restoring a meaningful relationship with God and faith, by answering the big questions about the hereafter and providing people purpose and conviction within which they can find residence and live in a godly way. We have something to offer there. I think if we provide that to people, perhaps many of them will actually take it. Mm. Perhaps many of them will take it. I mean, I've been surprised. We've seen in recent years Islamophobes, even prominent Islamophobes, accept Islam. We've seen people who are white supremacists accept Islam. We've seen people from all walks of life who previously were charting a course that was abhorrent and deplorable, completely shift and turn their life around through the guidance of Islam. And I think that's, that's possible. That's, you know, the prophet came to a people who literally were steeped in jahiliya, pre-Islamic ignorance. We were doing any number of things. And Islam transformed them. Hmm. So we can transform people as well. I don't think we should ever look at ourselves as totally disempowered, as, as people who are simply out on a limb speaking without any support behind us. And that the, what we're doing is we're just going to speak. No one's going to listen to us. We're just going to lose. Well, that's uh, a Muslim should speak with hope and optimism and confidence in God's plan and have trust in him and recognize that if they get rejected, if they get mocked, if they get ridiculed, that's just, that's just part of the program, right? That's bound to happen. And it should be a marker of pride. It should be something that we should look at as a badge of honor. And we continue. We persist. Well, that's a, a very uh, inspiring um, summary there. And uh, I, I will link to uh, your paper, Where the Rainbow Ends, American Muslims and LGBT Activism. It's actually really worth reading. Lots of information here about um, things that I didn't know about. That's fascinating. And also, uh, you have a fascinating website called Occasional Reflections, Reflections about religion, life, and whatever else comes to mind, which you update regularly, um, which I will link to as well in the description uh, below. And I just want to thank you again for your moral courage in speaking out. I know that uh, you know yours is not a cost-free environment either. You know, you're, you're, we're all vulnerable to uh, attack or retribution or deplatforming or other punitive measures. Um, uh, absolutely. So I do thank you very much, uh, Moby Invade, for your time and your expertise and your moral courage in coming on to talk about these issues. So thank you very much indeed. No, thank you again for having me. It really is my, my pleasure and, and honor to be here. So, Thank you. Well, until next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.